It's good to see you all this morning. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and an usher will gladly bring you one. If you don't know me, my name is Ben Spector. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Would love to get to know you if you don't know me, so feel free to find me after the service. This morning we are in the book of Nahum, and I will say up front, Nahum is, this is a heavy book, uh, and this is going to be a heavy message. Uh, As we consider the weightiness of evil and the weightiness of God's wrath, you will very likely feel, at some point in this sermon, uncomfortable. Uh, And yet, the fact that God has left us with Nahum's message means that for us to consider these things is good. This is good to consider these things. We need to consider these things. So I'm going to pray, and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can sing your praises. We thank you that we can sing whatever you ordain is right, that you do not deceive us, that you do not leave us. You are not a liar. You are good. And your care surrounds us even in the darkest of moments. We thank you for who you are. Would you help us to see you more clearly this morning through your word? Pray that in your name. Amen. So as I was... Mulling over the book of Nahum this week, I thought, I I was just in in this text, and you're going to see why it's heavy. And what came to my mind was a place I visited in the country of Austria when I was living overseas with my family, a place called Mauthausen. During World War II, Mauthausen was by far one of the worst Nazi work camps that existed. The camp was full of malnutrition, mistreatment, systematic killing, injustice, all present in this camp. But since it was a work camp, labor was enforced for all the prisoners. So just understand, sometimes they were working in the winter when it was negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, there, were, there was a two-year span during its seven year, about seven years this camp was open where the average male prisoner weighed 88 pounds. Prisoners had to, they were forced to work in a granite quarry carrying stones weighing upwards of 100 pounds up the 186 steps of what was named the Stairs of Death. If a prisoner dropped a stone, not only could it crush the feet of others behind him, but then that prisoner was beaten and the stone was placed, in, placed back on his back to be once again carried up the stairs of death. In just under seven years, it is estimated that 90,000 people were killed. That's two Puyallups, to, to put this into perspective. And so as I was touring the camp with my wife, my mother and father-in-law, as we stood in the barracks where they kept the prisoners, as we stood in the gas chamber where they would systematically kill prisoners, as we walked down and then back up the stairs of death, 
I remember at one point turning and seeing my father-in-law with his hands in his face, and he lost it. The sheer overwhelming force of knowing what sort of evil has taken place on the ground beneath you is shocking. It didn't take long in a place like Mounthausen to remember that we live in a messed up and evil world. And though, as far as I know, none of us this morning here present were prisoners of Nazi Germany, we all experience and face evil on a daily basis. Whether it's news of countries at war, whether it's the lasting effects of the horrors of slavery in our own country, whether it's the terrors of sex trafficking, the abuse of authority, the anti-God ideologies that run rampant in our culture, whether it's addiction, sickness, injuries, mental illness, or simply our own impatience and discontentment, we live in a messed up and evil world. And this is where Nahum comes in. As we continue our sermon series in the Minor Prophets, we're we're taking a whole prophet at a time and surveying the the entire book in one sermon. And as we dive into Nahum, uh, we learn that the Israelites, God's people, were under the thumb of one of the most brutally violent powers of the ancient world. It's It's the nation of Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh. In other words, as we go into this, we need to understand the Israelites knew firsthand the horrors of evil. And so Nahum, whose name literally means comfort, his name means comfort, comes to God's people to answer this question, and this is our big idea. How does God comfort you in hard times? How does God comfort you in hard times? And in our text, we're going to see three answers to this question, and they all have to do with God calling on us to rely on him. And, and, and the way that we're going to see these answers is by really planting our feet firmly in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The, the, this section of the letter uh, serves as a key to understanding and explaining the rest of the book that follows after it. So as we go through each of these answers, there's three of them, as to how God comforts us in hard times, as we go through that, uh, we're going to be looking back often at verses 1 to 8 as, as a way to then understand and explain the rest of the book. So the first answer to how does God comfort you in hard times, when Nahum would say that you need to rely on God as king. So let's read together, <clears throat> or listen, I should say, as I read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. 
Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, these are some pretty intense verses, uh, and there's lots to unpack here. But as you notice, as we were reading through, one of the first things that should pop out to us is this big picture that Nahum is giving us of God. He's giving us a big picture of God's majesty, his power, his grandeur, his bigness. And all of this points to the reality of what we would call God's Sovereignty. He is the sovereign, the king of everything. God is large and in charge, and he's over everything. The question is, is is this how we think of God? Is this how we conceive of God? Do we think of God as the one before whom everybody trembles, before whose anger nobody can stand? Do do we think of him as the one next to whom we are utterly small? Do we think of him as the one who is great in power, as verse 3 says, or the one for whom the clouds are nothing but the dust that plumes up under his feet when he takes a step? The one before whom the whole earth simultaneously shudders when he opens his mouth, verses 4 and 5. The, the, the point is, God, God has no equal. God has no rival. God has no match. God is the king. Yahweh God is the king. And we, just like the Israelites in Judah, to whom Nahum is writing, we need to regularly have reality checks to see just how small we are and just how big God is. Recently, I heard scholar and author Carl Truman say this, and I think he's right. Um, There is a good part of what we do as Christians to, and most of us want to do this, we want to study Scripture for our personal growth. We want to grow in maturity as Christians. That is a good end to why we study. But he also asked the question, do we also have regular rhythms of simply pausing just to reflect on who God is, simply for the sake of knowing him more, for nothing else than the end of seeing God as great and majestic. According to Nahum, the way he starts his book, we need to regularly be confronted with the reality of who God is in his bigness and in his sovereignty. But the question becomes then, If Nahum, whose name means comfort, is coming to God's people who are discomforted, who are uncomfortable due to evil, how is God as big? How is God as king? How is that comforting in hard times? Well, as we move on from the description that Nahum gives us of God in verses 1 through 8, and we move into the rest of the book, we start to see what God does as the king. And while there's a lot that we could go to, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So please follow along. 
Chapter 1, verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? Oh, and sorry, let me say, in this section, Nahum is speaking simultaneously. It's like he ha- it's, it's almost as if God is speaking through Nahum to two different parties. He's speaking in one moment to the Assyrians, and then the next moment to the Israelites in Judah. So I'm, I'm going to kind of call it out as, as we read through this so that we understand who he's speaking to. So verse 9, he's speaking to Assyria. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Now he turns to Judah, and he starts talking to them about Assyria. For they, Assyria, are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Now to Assyria, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now back to Judah, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off, off you and will, burn, and will burst your bonds apart. Back to Assyria, verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. As we look at those verses, 9 through 14 of chapter 1, what is mainly being addressed here is how God is going to judge the Assyrians. Right? The the point is the king, the king says this is going to happen, so it's going to happen. And it did happen historically when the Babylonians and the Medes came in to conquer them. Even more specifically, though, notice verses 12 and 13. We, we, we need to remember that the whole reason God's people, the people of Israel, were under the thumb of the Assyrians in the first place was because of their own sin. God was afflicting, as verse 12 says, or he was judging his own people for their sin and rebellion against him. So notice how God says this, I, though I have afflicted you. This is referring to that. But Assyria took all sorts of liberties as they were conquering Israel and did horrible things to them. The the point is, we see, this is what the king does. God in his sovereignty brought the Assyrians to judge his people, and now in the same way, he as the sovereign, as the king, is going to break their yoke off the neck of his people. That's verse 13. So, so, so again, we see chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, God is king, and that means, as we see in verses 9 through 14, that he is in absolute control over everything. That's how God as king is comforting in hard times. He has absolute control. And so then the call on us as God's people is that if we want comfort in the midst of hard times, well, we need to rely on God as the king. All of us, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I think we all know this is true, all of us are in some way, shape, or form control freaks. We are all control freaks, whether you like it or not. Nobody here, I'm, I'm just assuming, if, if this is not you, please let me know after the service. But <laughs> I would love to meet you and hear your advice. Nobody likes the sensation of not being in control. And what God as king means is not 
that we need to give up control to him as if it's ours in the first place to give. What God is king means is that we need to accept the fact that God is in control and just submit to it. And the reality is that is, is if God is in control and he is ultimately good and he is for his people, then no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens in my life, I can trust him. You can trust him. We can trust his good intentions, his good ends, and his good character, right? This is finding comfort in the fact that when injustice abounds or the world seems to be spinning out of control, if God is king and the world seems like it's spinning out of control to me and everything seems like it's out of control, maybe the only thing that is actually out of control is my limited and my finite perspective. God is not fretting and God is not forgetful. God ordains the rise and the fall of nations. He orchestrates every detail of your life. And contrary to what Disney would tell us, he, not we, commands our destiny. God is in control. And this, this, this truth is in no way meant to write off or diminish the real pain involved in hard times. Hard times are called hard times because they are hard. They're painful. But it is to say that in the midst of hard times, God comes to us in our pain with comfort and calls us to rely on him as the king. But, back to verses 1 through 8, as we likely picked up on in these verses, we also see that the king, the king's angry. The king is furious. And he's furious with evil. And all this leads to Nahum's second point, that God calls us not only to rely on him as king, but to rely on him as judge. So if, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, you, you can't miss the fact that God is wrathful, that God is jealous, that God is avenging, that God is keeping wrath for his enemies, that God is a God who pours out indignation, his indignation against evil like fire. And he will make sure, verse 8, that his enemies are destroyed. I told you this was going to get intense. The point is, God is the judge of all creation, and he is a warrior. And he is not holding back against evil. He does not sweep evil under the carpet. And so if we move on then from verses 1 through 8 into the rest of the book, we see, start to see some characteristics of God's judgment, of his justice. One of the first things that we see is that God is powerful in his judgment of evil. And, and, and we see this if we go back to chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, they, Assyria, though they are at full strength, and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Don't misunderstand. The, the Assyrians, they, they, they were like, they were powerful. In one sense, they were like, they were the America of their day and military force. But they were also brutal, and they were numerous, right? They are at full strength and many. 
So of course, as God's people are looking out their windows at the Assyrians, and they're feeling powerless to do anything about this evil on their doorstep, God comes in and says, guys, where you feel powerless to defeat this evil, I am not powerless. Though they seem like they're really strong, it doesn't matter. I got this. I am the king, and I am powerful in my judgment of evil. But we also see that God is severe in his judgment of evil. So if, if you have time later today, I would encourage you to read through all of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Th- these chapters speak entirely about the destruction of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Um, but I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which is really the climax of chapters 2 and 3. It's, it's the pinnacle of these chapters. And I think that chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, illustrates this point. Not only that God is powerful in his judgment of evil, but that he's severe in his judgment of evil. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. He's calling out to Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. The crack of the whip. The rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging. Flashing sword and glittering spear. Host of slain. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Pretty dark. But instead of just skipping over these verses because we're uncomfortable, what what we need to do is understand that evil is evil. Evil is not a casual thing for God. And, and, And I think it's not really for us either. When you hear of the horrors of Mauthausen, there's a part, I think, in every one of us that wants severe punishment for severe crimes. God is severe in his judgment of evil. But we also see that God's fair in his judgment of evil. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, let's read these again. The Lord is jealous, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But then notice this. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Notice that though God is wrathful and avenging, verse 3 lets us know, Simultaneously, he is a God who is slow to anger. The word literally means that he is long of nostrils. It takes a long time for the steam to start coming out. The point is, is that contrary to us, who in our wrath and in our, with our justice meters, we are so flippant and we can be so off the cuff and so impatient and so unfair, God, in his judgment of evil, is patient. And he's also perfect in the way that he meters it out. And we can even see this if we go back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, right? The way that Nineveh pronounces woe over Nineveh, he's basically telling us, well, look, 
I mean, Nineveh was a city covered in the blood of those who she slaughtered. Nineveh was a place made rich. It talks about plunder. It was a place made rich on the backs of those who the Assyrians impaled and flayed alive. Nineveh was, according to Nahum, like a prostitute who wooed others to their death with her charms and with her tricks. What Nahum shows us is that God's punishment fits the crime. He's fair. And whereas at the end of the book of Jonah, a hundred years prior to this, God sent Jonah to pronounce, to give them a chance for repentance, and they repented, a hundred years later, the next generation apparently did not. And God has moved to a place of wrath and fair justice toward them. But maybe most surprising of all to us is that in all of this, so God is not only powerful, God is not only severe and fair in his judgment, but he's also good in his judgment of evil. Go to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. It's the last verses of the book. Speaking to Assyria, specifically the king of Syria. He says, verse 18, Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Now hear this. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Verse 19, and specifically those, those last few lines of verse 19, make it clear that in Nahum's day and age, it's like, man, there's not really anybody who hasn't felt the evil of Assyria on them. And, and in a sense, the specific evils of Assyria point to the universal evil of sin and Satan, which affects all of humanity. And when evil is judged by God, when God judges it powerfully and severely and fairly, the result that we see is rejoicing. It's clapping. It's flourishing for all humans the result, according to verse 19, is good. We should be glad, brothers and sisters, that God is angry with evil. God, just understand this, God would not be good if he was not angry with evil. Any hope of a world without evil depends on God being angry with evil. So what does then, in light of all of this, right? If we're still talking about relying on God as judge, what does relying on him as judge look like? What does it look like? I I think it looks like exactly what Aaron Sherwood read earlier in our service. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is yours. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And remember, all of this then is supposed to lead God's people to a place of comfort. Is there evil you face which you feel powerless to overcome? Nahum says, God can and will deal with it. Do you feel the weight of injustice? Well, Nahum would say, well, God is going to right every wrong, and he's going to do it in a perfectly patient and perfectly just way. 
Do you feel the brokenness and darkness of this world? Well, Nahum says, one day God will banish the darkness forever and bring back flourishing. He calls us to rely in hard times on God as judge. And yet, even as we go over all of this, there's a very real sense where, I think for most of us in this room, there's something still kind of uncomfortable about this. The fact that God is going to bring judgment. Like, so as much as we're like, yeah, God, go, go get him. Go, go get evil. As one author said, the moment I say God is right to be angry against bad people, I admit that God is right to be angry with me. Please hear this. Just because you are sitting here today in church and doing Christian things does not mean that all of a sudden you get a free pass. Or don't think that just because you're sitting here and listening to this and you're like, yeah, go get the evil out there, God, that God is just mad at the evil that's done against you. If you remember Nahum chapter 1, 1 to 8, where it describes God, God is described as universally a God of wrath. He is angry with the evil of Mounthausen, and he is angry with the evil in all of our hearts. So, how is there comfort in that? For that, to find comfort in that, we need to go to our last point, which is rely on God. Not only as king and judge, but as protector. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. And as we were reading through this earlier in the service, you may have noticed this is, it feels like a ray of light in a very heavy and dark book. Verse 7 of chapter 1, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Another way to translate this is he takes care of those who take refuge in him. He protects them. If God is wrathful against evil, how can anybody find refuge amidst the storm of his fury? Well, in chapter 1, verse 7, we're reminded that God is not only good, but he's a stronghold, a refuge, a safe place to any and all who put their trust in in him. And we know that this is at least in part speaking about being safe from wrath because it's directly connected or contrasted with verse 8, which says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Remember, God is a warrior coming out to slay the dragon of evil. The God of the universe the king, the judge, is so committed to defeating evil. He is so angry with injustice. He is so severe in his punishment that he took on human flesh and marched into the grave to put evil in its place. In dying on the cross, Jesus took the largest blow of injustice to have ever been inflicted in the world. 
He took the punishment deserved on sin, on, for sin on himself, and then in rising from the dead, he dealt the death blow to evil, and he is coming back one day to fully and finally eradicate it once and for all. And you know the way that God is good in all of that, brothers and sisters? One of the ways God is good in the midst of him being the warrior is the fact that he did all of that to save us from sin. So according to chapter 1, verse 7, the person who trusts in God, the person who relinquishes their own self-righteousness, the person who comes, and implicit in this, if you're going to find refuge in God, you have to come admitting your weakness. The person who comes admitting their own weakness and their own evil, the one who comes to God relying on him as their only hope for their protection is the one for whom God becomes a refuge. And ultimately, this means repenting of your sins, repenting of your evil, turning from it, and relying on Jesus, which means to trust that if you place your faith in him, that you will be saved. And in that moment, the moment you do that, the terrifying reality that God is the warrior king who is coming out to defeat evil will become a message of comfort for you. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, to those of us here today who rely on God as their protector, we have no rights to boast before him. Were it not for Jesus, we would be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. This would be terrifying, horrific news for us. But thanks be to God that he comes and he comforts us in the midst of our own evil by taking it on himself. We experience, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we experience the comfort of God as our refuge. And this does not mean in any way that the Assyrians of our lives will not come knocking on our door. What it does mean is that you have a transcendent comfort in the midst of an evil world. It means that right now, here and today, you can celebrate the defeat of evil, even though the judgment day has not come yet. Because you know that on that day, because of what God has done in the gospel, you will be safe. And if you are here today, or maybe you're a young person and you just, you're here just because your parents brought you, don't take this lightly. You need to find safety and refuge in the Lamb of God. I would encourage you to talk to your parents. Come, or come talk to me after the service. You can celebrate the defeat of evil today because of who God is, because of the gospel. Or, chapter 1, verse 15 puts it, you're going to feast. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. God speaking to Judah here. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. 
Brothers and sisters, just as the defeat of Assyria meant feasting for Judah, right? That, that, that is the tension. God is getting rid of evil, and, and he's saying, feast, fulfill your vows, worship me. Just as it meant that for them. So the ultimate defeat of evil means that we Christians will feast together in God's house, fulfilling our vows of worship and praise to him for all of eternity. So as we face hardship, as we face hard times, Nahum would say, we need to lean into who our God is. We need to rely on him as the king, as the judge, as your protector. I think one of the largest encouragements from this book is to pray for a greater vision of who God is. Ask God to open your eyes to behold his glory more. Plead that God would enlarge our hearts to love him more. Because when we see God, we are called by him to rely on him. And in relying on him, there comfort is found. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we want to take a moment and just be silent before who you are. We confess you as king, as lord, as judge, as protector. And we pray that you would give us a greater vision of who you are. We pray for the salvation of many who don't know you. And we ask that you would comfort us in hard times with who you, your character. And would you give us grace to rely on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.